This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. It is 37 degrees C, 98 Fahrenheit, outside my studio right now. Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, is 49 degrees C, or 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It is 120 degrees in Sicily, too, which may be an all-time European heat record. This is a good time to call the lead author of New Science, published July 26, 2021. The title is Increasing Probability of Record-Shattering Climate Extremes. Dr. E.M. Fisher is also permanent scientist at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. He leads research into climate extremes. Eric is a lead author for the very latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the Working Group one, released August 9th in Geneva. From Zurich, Eric Fisher, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin with that study in the journal Nature. Of course, new heat records will be set as Earth gradually warms. What takes us beyond that to record-shattering extremes? So let me start by just reflecting on, on, on the fact that the longer we measure something, the less and less record we should expect to see without climate change. It's the same in sports, for instance. If you have a discipline that people have tried for a very long time, there's going to be less and less world records. For instance, the uh, long jumping, high jumping is a discipline where record states already decades back. And uh, this is basically what we should be expecting to see. But what we currently see is, as you correctly pointed out, quite the opposite. Suddenly we see records shattered, broken by very large margins. And the fact that records are broken more often that we should expect to see without climate change has been pointed out before but here we made a specific put a specific focus on on those events that go way beyond the previous margin and we argued that these specific events are often very challenging in terms of their impacts this summer an astounding block of heat parked over mediterranean countries with the landscape erupting in fire in many places algeria being the latest greece and turkey the worst can I assume this does not surprise you? This does definitely not surprise you. This is really what we pointed out. I mean, when we had this uh, IPCC report released, we said, you know, the earlier reports from the 90s, we've been talking about the future. What's going to happen if we continue to emit greenhouse gases for, for another decade or two and so on? This is no longer a prediction. This is we really in the midst of it. I mean, and, and we see now um, evidence all over the planet that not only mean temperatures are changes, but we actually see clear signals also in, in record heat events in many uh, across uh, most of the planet. And yes, this is exactly the behavior we have been studying in our, in our paper, uh, which we actually wrote long before the uh, Pacific Northwest heat wave. It was just one coincidence that it actually happened about two, three weeks before we got the paper finally published, but obviously the whole study was written before. So we looked at climate model simulation for our uh, paper. And when I first saw one of these events that broke a previous record by, uh, it was something like five, six degrees centigrade, I thought there must must have been something wrong in, in the climate model. And, and we I had a closer look and, and looked at the processes that caused that specific event. Really, look, they had the same drivers as we know from heat waves in North America, heat waves in Europe, that we have these uh, persistent, long-standing, high-pressure system 
we had very dry conditions before the event, so, uh, so meaning that we have very dry soils. And during the heat wave, the evaporation, so the water um, evaporation, cannot longer long cool the event. And so this was, uh, in the end, an event that looked really very real in, in the model. So then we went further on and, and start, started to study why we do these, see these type of event, and we realized that we, in the climate models uh, first, where we looked, uh, we saw a lot of these events, particularly when we had a very high rate of warming. So we realized this has to be, uh, is, is closely related not only to the total amount of warming, but to the actual rate of warming, to the, to the speed of warming, which is currently very high. Yes, why do you say the changes of record-shattering extremes, quote, depends on warming rate rather than global warming level? That's a bit of a surprise to many of us. It is, in fact, and it was a surprise to us, too, because we had earlier pointed out if you define a heat wave anomaly as a a deviation from a long-term mean, as we usually do, say we count anomalies of five degrees higher than the long at the 1981 to 2010 baseline and uh, define a heat wave anomaly like this, and then we we understand very well that it's the total amount of warming that really causes an increase. But in terms of the record-breaking and record-shattering event, it is really the rate of warming. And the reason is, if you think about having a heat wave every 50 years that has a very, very high um, anomaly, it's it's extremely hot, and then really depends on how fast the warming occurred during the 50-year period between two, two of these heat waves that, dep- that determines on by how much the second heat waves break the record of the, uh, of the previous one. The way you could also understand it, if, for instance, you were able to stabilize temperature at one and a half degree uh, be, uh, above the 19th century temperatures or two degrees above uh, of 19th century temperatures, um, after a while, these record-breaking and record-shattering events will become rarer and rarer again because we basically would see uh, then longer and longer observations in a steady-state climate that is warmer to today, but we would see we still see many more heat waves than in earlier times when we would see less of these record behavior because we would then have longer and longer measurements in a new climate state, in other words. So, yes, it's important to understand that even if we stabilize in a warmer climate, we would still have lots of severe negative consequences of these uh, events occurring way more often. We we would just uh, expect to see less and less of these record behavior to occur that we currently witness in many places across the planet. It's a bit hard to understand because if the appearance of extremes comes partly from the pace of warming, what regulates that pace? It can't be just current emissions, which are growing, but supposedly there's a time lag of a decade or more between emission levels and impacts. There's all sorts of other factors like deforestation at play. How much can the carbon sinks take? So what is it that actually regulates that pace? And is that something that humans could control somehow? It's really tightly related to the uh, concentration of atmospheric uh, CO2 that uh, are rapidly increasing, but until the 1980s, 90s have been counteracted by the cooling effect of aerosol emissions. So the aerosol concentration, particles in the air that reflect the incoming sunlight have been 
helping us to some extent. They obviously had bad effects on air, air quality and so on, but they have somewhat cancelled some of the warming. And now that we have uh, cleaner air in many places, the temperature, uh, um, the effect of CO2 becomes more visible and we have a very rapid warming. And then on top of that, we obviously also have a, a little bit of natural variations that are superimposed to that long-term warming rate. We know that uh, in the, the so-called warming poles, which wasn't really a warming pole, but it was just a slightly a slower warming rate for a while in the in the early 2000s, and now we are in a period of relatively rapid uh, warming that um, causes high warming rates in many places of the planet. So, but but again, the, the warming pace really only controls the records, not the extremes per se. It's really only the, the record, the fact that we see events breaking uh, records that have been established, that have been long-standing. Uh, and it's not the, the extremes in general, because even if there are no longer records, the extremes will still occur way more often, even if we have no high warming rate in the future. I hope that becomes clear, sorry. It does. <laughs> I understand that. So I still, though, have to caution some friends and doomers, this kind of heat may not happen every year. That doesn't seem to be what you're saying. But the superheat waves become more probable? That's correct, yes. That's a very important point. Actually, once we have such a record-shattering event, we would, in some places, actually expect that it will take quite a while until it gets broken again. So I sometimes think the places where we really have to uh, focus on are often those that haven't seen a record for a long time. And and in our paper, if you look closely, one thing where we focus, one area where we focus on is the U.S. Midwest and the eastern U.S., which actually are one of the very few regions across the world which have not seen much of a trend in the hottest days and, and, uh, 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 of the year. And one reason is that uh, in the 1930s, as you know, during the Dust Bowl region period, there were very, very warm summers, exceptionally warm summers in some places of the U.S. Midwest. And these records have been just standing for a very, very long time. So some people argue, well, that seems to suggest that this area is less affected. I think maybe it was just by chance to some extent that these events haven't reoccurred again. And usually these places that haven't seen much of these events occurring recently are the ones that are not very well prepared. So I think it's a, it's like before an earthquake or before a, a, a volcano eruption. So you have sometimes this quiescent phase. And actually, this is, in terms of adaptation, quite dangerous because that's basically what we see in our study. If you don't have a record for a very long time, sometimes if, if the same weather, weather patterns occur again that happens in the 1930s, if they would occur today, they would occur in a much warmer climate. And you would expect to uh, these, record, these temperatures be broken by very large margins specifically over these areas which haven't seen these record-shattering behavior uh, recently. And again, the reason why we focus on these types of events is that usually there's still, despite all the research we're doing, there's just a a human behavior. What we society tends to do is that we tend to adapt to the worst thing that we've witnessed during our lifetime or maybe our parents or grandparents' parents have talked about. 
and, and not much more because we know. Uh, and then once an event occurs, if you had all the fires, if you had all the heat wave related mortality, usually this politicians become really active and, and put some uh, heat warning system in plan, some health plan for elderly homes that they inform people how to behave, stay safe and stay cool during heat waves and so on. And, and hopefully, uh, if the same temperature occur again a couple of years later, we would hope that at least uh, some of the consequences will be uh, substantially smaller because there is some way to adapt to it, at least to some extent. Whereas the ecosystems, the, the, the forests, the, 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 the lakes, the, the rivers and so on, the, 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 uh, the ocean obviously cannot so easily adapt to, to a, a new climate norm. We all know that very well. I think at least in terms of the effect on, on human mortality and so they could probably be a level. Uh, um, but, but that needs... That needs us to prepare for these types of events. And usually if we haven't seen these events during our lifetime, we tend to be very poorly prepared. In recent years, Australia got insane heat and terrible wildfires. But Eric, as the planet heats up, will the southern hemisphere get as extreme as the northern half of the planet? Is it fairly evenly distributed? I mean, we have more land masses over the over the northern hemisphere and and if you look at the our model projections where we expect to see the strongest changes in uh, in the the heat wave intensity they tend to occur over the northern mid latitude so uh, the uh, from all the way from north america central us uh, through europe uh, france about, uh, and then eastern europe into part of Central Asia and all the way to China. But there are also places in South uh, Africa and uh, the um, southern coast of Australia that are uh, some of these hotspot areas where we see the largest changes. So, yes, some places in, in Australia and South Africa are also affected, but, it, but the rest is mostly over the, the northern hemisphere. But it's important, yes, as you pointed out, we had a record-shattering event in 2018-19 in Australia. Uh, they, they refer to it as the angriest summer. I think there was an angry summer in the early 2010s, and then the 2018-19 uh, was, was called the angriest summer when they actually, again, also broke... Uh, a record by a very large margin, and they uh, there was all these these stories about they had to come up with a new color uh, in their color panel for the weather weather charts because these type of temperatures didn't even exist in their in their color uh, color bar. Yes, it was a deep purple. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Eric Fisher from ETH Zurich. We're talking about new science on record-breaking heat and much more, and the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And we all want to know these near-term predictions for climate. What's going to happen during our lifetimes? And we can do no better than the latest summary just released by the IPCC, Eric Fisher, you are the lead author for Chapter 4 of the AR6 report and the technical summary, of course. And that chapter is titled Future Global Climate, Scenario-Based Projections and Near-Term Information. Why do scientists have more confidence in projecting climate change in the next 20 years than they did before, even some warnings for specific regions? One of the reasons is that we, in the near term, 
a lot of the changes are actually not heavily dependent on the, the, the scenarios. In other words, whatever we do um, over the next 10, 15 years, we're still going to emit a lot of greenhouse gases. There's no way that we could decarbonize the whole planet in five or ten years, unfortunately, even if it would be great to do so. But, but uh, all the scenarios assume that we're going to continue to emit carbon in the near term. And so the reason is then basically that all the emission scenarios we've been looking at from the very uh, low all the way to the very high emission scenario, they continue to warm for the next 10, 15 years. And in all of those, we reach this um, level of one and a half degree centigrade warmer on global level, warmer than the pre-industrial period or the period 1850 to 1900 in around the 2030s. In other words, uh, one of the reasons why we are confident that we know where we go in the near future is the fact that the emissions are going to continue and all the scenarios are doing relatively similar things. That said, we know that in the near term, obviously, one of the challenges is the uh, so-called internal variability, the part of the, of the system which we cannot predict. Uh, we don't know whether it's going to be an El Nino or La Nina in six, seven, eight, nine years from now. So um, we caution in our chapter uh, carefully that while we know the uh, most probable outcome from the next 10, 15 years very well, in many places of the, of the planet, this may actually be either amplified or uh, dampened by what we call internal variability of the climate system. And one of the most important a source of the internal variability is the uh, El Niño-La Niña system or the North Atlantic variability. Could our arrival at 1.5 degrees 10 years early than we previously thought, could that change our trajectory, our whole climate trajectory over longer periods? We don't think so. Actually, that is quite consistent with the earlier uh, with, with reports. It's, it's a bit hard to compare directly because the scenarios we're using are somewhat updated with somewhat new assumption on, for instance, the changes in methane and um, aerosol. So we cannot directly compare one a perfect comparison between the earlier and the, and the later report, but there's very strong indications that overall these projections are very consistent between the previous report and that report. What you refer to 10 years earlier is actually not in the final report documented as such. We refer to the fact that the um, special report on 1.5 degree, they used different methods. So yes, we come up with a date quoting a best estimate that happens to be 10 years earlier than in the, uh, in the special report, but the reason is not the model, but it's basically a, uh, that they made a very, very simple assumption in the special report that and simply expected that we have a linear continuation of the warming from the 80s all the way to 2030. And in this new report, in the AR6 uh, assessment report, we specifically took the emission scenarios into account and we showed that these tend to warm stronger than you would expect from a linear interpolation. And this is how we come up with a earlier date 
a somewhat earlier date that is often quoted in the uh, context of the special report of 1.5 degrees. But the long-term trajectory looks quite the same and uh, is very consistent to a degree uh, that comparison is, is possible. A few years ago, there were conferences like Four Degrees and Beyond at Oxford and Melbourne. I ran some of the speeches from it, including by veteran German scientist John Schellenhuber. According to your new results, apparently accepted by all 195 member countries, is it possible to get to four degrees C warming and beyond in this century? Is that still, you know, it's rare, but is it possible? It is still there. I mean, it's absolutely possible. Uh, uh, we need to be careful because I often hear that people now quote, quoting numbers that uh, we're on track to three three degrees. Well, that's just the the, the, the best estimate maybe for um, for continuing today's policy. But that's just assuming that we get that the, the multi-model mean unfolds. But if you look at the actual range across the models, it still includes substantially higher levels of warming, all the way to four and a half, five degrees. And, and actually, we specifically emphasize this in our chapter, so in the, in the section 4.8 in chapter 4, and it's also highlighted in the summary of our policymaker, we look specifically for what we call low likelihood high warming storylines, how, how low likelihood high warming outcomes. And what it refers to is the fact that it, it's, it's a response to, to criticism of earlier reports that said the, the IPCC tends to be very much focused on the likely range, on the most probable outcome. And you could argue, well, this, is, this makes sense from a scientific point of view. That's where we have the highest probability to end up. That's what we have most models ending up, and that's what we understand best. But obviously, from a risk perspective, which the next working group, two is going to take, this is absolutely not a, a feasible way to go. If you think about your home insurance or your health insurance, you never think about the 95 or 90 percent most likely outcome. You care about this 5 percent or 1 percent that really caused the damage. So um, this is exactly why in this report, I think for the first time, we specifically highlight, highlighted is low likelihood but high impact outcome. And this includes the fact that we could have substantially more warming than the likely range. Actually, this is the same is true even for the low warming uh, emission scenarios. But for the, um, say, those emission scenarios in which we think that we could likely limit the warming to um, below two degrees, you find individual models that actually even warm by two and a half and more degrees for those emission scenarios. And we thought as long as these, they exist and they actually do look plausible and we cannot rule them out, I think we need to emphasize them. That's a very important part to take to, into account in decision-making if we cannot rule out outcomes that are going substantially beyond this, what we call the, the likely range. And if you also look at the sea level rise projections, also for the first time, there are these cones that show you the most probable outcome. And then there's a dashed line that goes way beyond this. And this is, well, I guess this is a low likelihood outcome. It assumes that it takes into account that we have unknown unknowns. We have potential ice sheet instabilities in the Antarctica. Quite unlikely to happen, but 
I think it's quite important to take into account where if we do a comprehensive risk assessment, we need to know, know also about these possible uh, outcomes, low likelihood, but which we cannot rule out. Yes, climate change goes far beyond being hotter. Erica, during the last six years, you published several papers on heavy rainfall events. What do you think about the deadly floods that struck northern Europe this year, and are those climate-related? There's two, two aspects of this. So the heavy rainfall event, I definitely think it's, it's uh, related. So this is really, um, a, a year ago, we published a paper where we looked at station data across a lot of Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, Austria, all of Central Europe. We looked at hundreds of stations that go back all the way to 1900. And we looked at the fraction of these stations that show positive and significant positive trend. And we find something like 90% of the stations show a positive trend and only 10% show a negative trend. By chance, you would expect to see 50-50 or maybe 60-40%, but nothing like this. Also, with a significant fraction, we see a very large fraction of significant increase and almost zero stations with significant decrease. And again, by chance, you would expect these to be about the same. So yes, we do see a, a substantially larger fraction that we would expect to see by chance. Well, the IPCC report includes a temporary way out. If there are large volcanic eruptions, a detour can be expected. How do volcanic eruptions throw off other predictions? So that's correct. We wanted to point this out because we realized actually it's very important that we talk about all the potential possibilities. Uh, we learned in our lesson from this, what, what referred to the warming pause, often, uh, which I said wasn't really a pause, but it was a, sl- a, a slowdown maybe. And people have said, you failed to point this out, the possibility of this to occur. And the same is with volcanoes. We know there is a chance for um, large eruptions. We have seen large eruptions in like Pinatuba in the 90s, uh, in, in the and um, LG John in the 80s, and Agung in the 60s, which can cool the, the planet for, for one, two years. But usually, for the future projection, we only assume background volcanic aerosol. So it's just a normal uh, of these many small eruptions going on across the planet. This is included, but there are no very large tropical eruptions, including in these, uh, in these projection scenarios. And we point out the fact that if something like that is to happen in the next 20 or 30 years, it would cool down planet for one, two, or up to three years, and then we would basically go back to the, the previous trajectory. So we wanted to point this out, and we even have a bullet, uh, we have even pointed out in the subsection that we know in Earth history there have even been sequences of, of, of volcanic eruptions to occur, a very unlikely outcome again, but uh, if that were to happen, we would expect to see a cooling for uh, a couple of years up to a decade until the warming picks up. But it's clear that this wouldn't, in the long run, it's still going to be the, the carbon emissions that are going to dominate the warming rate and not these uh, volcanic eruptions. But it's important to remember that, to point out the possibility of this. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Are there any further points you would like to leave with our listeners? Just related again to the record-shattering paper, I think one of the messages we would like to highlight is not only about 
the changes in carbon emission, but it's also the fact for all the planners for uh, out there, for all the people that think about planning infrastructure and so on, looking back at the weather of the last 50 or 70 years is no longer enough. We need to factor in the, the warming. Most of our measurements date back from a period where the planet was half a degree or more cooler than now, and they're no longer representative. And I argue that many places in the, uh, on our planet haven't seen anything close to the most intense heat wave or heavy rainfall possible even without any further warming. From ETH Zurich, we have been speaking with IPCC lead author and senior research scientist Dr. Eric Fisher. Look to my weekly blog at ecoshock.org for links to Dr. Fisher, his paper on record-shattering heat, and the new Working Group 1 report for the IPCC 6th assessment. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. What did two of the worst, hottest, fieriest years have in common? In 1997, 98, and 2010, peat fires were smoke bombs and they were carbon bombs. We're going to get a sneak peek from a new book by Canadian author Ed Struzik. Ed's previous book seems pretty on topic, too, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. Struzik is an award-winning science journalist and a fellow at the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. Ed Struzik, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me on. Your book, Firestorm, came out after the oil town of Fort McMurray, Canada, partly burned in 2016. You worked out the math of living in an age of megafires. From your perch in Alberta now, Ed, what do you make of the superfires burning through California right up to British Columbia? You know, it's head spinning. Um, in 2016, Fort McMurray seemed like the uh, nightmarish future and that we couldn't top that. And then California just kept burning and burning and burning, and British Columbia and Canada, I think three of the past five years, have been record-breaking fire seasons. And we're also seeing what's happening now in Europe, in Sicily, Sardinia, uh, what happened to Australia. I can tell you I've talked to many people in the fire science community, and no one, no one envisioned anything like this happening as fast as it's been happening. It's just, we've been just seeing so many firsts that it's hard to kind of uh, uh, register in your mind that this is what's happening to the landscape. Yes, I think of the gorgeous landscapes and beloved homes burned in more than half a dozen Mediterranean countries this summer, as you mentioned. Northern Algeria is the latest to suffer deadly forest fires. It's a lot of nature lost, too. Ed, talk to us about the impacts for all of us long after the smoke of this year's fire clears. Well, the impact is is that we're going to you know, have to deal with a lot of you know, what many people call climate change refugees. How do we reintegrate them into the forest and grassland ecosystems that have burned so severely? Uh, how do we plan for the future to prevent more and more of these evacuations and these burn downs? 
Uh, I don't think that we've come to grips with it yet. We seem content with the business-as-usual approach to compensate those who have lost their homes, uh, lost the landscapes that they, they love. But that's really not the answer. Clearly, we can't afford to do that. Insurance companies are now beginning to refuse to uh, insure people who live in these environments. So we have to come up with a new way of dealing with what's happening. In the July 5th West Coast publication, The Tie, you claim we're on the brink of, quote, a runaway fire age. What leads you to that conclusion? Just what's happening in California, if you look at, uh, you know, California did not have a wildfire problem prior to 2003. And I think more than 20 of their worst fires have happened since then, and most of them happened have happened in the past five years. And we're seeing, I think, you know, that's the model for how we should look at runaway fires in the future. California is not a standalone when it comes to runaway fires. Oregon is experiencing it now. British Columbia is. Alberta has in the past. Europe is now burning up. We saw the Yakutia in northern Russia. The fires there have been burning so intensely that smoke from those fires have got to the North Pole for the first time. So it's very clear that we are in a very clear pattern right now where we are experiencing fires, having to deal with fires that we cannot control. Uh, I liken it to, you know, a tornado or a hurricane. Those are meteorological events that we don't expect to be able to stop or to control. You know, we basically adjust our lifestyles, our building codes to adapt to that. We haven't done that yet with, with wildfire, um, and we're going to have to because it really is a, a kind of a tsunami that's taking over the landscape. Yes, and these fires can create their own weather systems. I was astounded to read that tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, of dry lightning strikes developed in a weather system generated by recent wildfires. And it happened in both the United States and Canada. That happened in Australia, too, a couple of years ago. What are we learning about fire-made weather? Well, these are called pyro-CBs. And again, prior to 2000, they were, you know, kind of theoretical events that... uh, People didn't really, we knew that lightning was coming out of them, that they, they, you could even hear thunder coming out of them, but they were just so rare that no one really believed that they had the energy to, say, produce lightning on a blue sky day as in Fort McMurray uh, and ignite or trigger wildfires uh, 20 kilometers or 20 miles away from the fire front. We're now seeing these happening with a regular occurrence. I can recall speaking in Washington where scientists from the U.S. Naval Defense Lab or Research Lab reported five pyro CBs, one out of Washington and four out of B.C., uh, erupting simultaneously. And they described that then as the mother of all pyro CB events. That was, what, three years ago, and now Australia produced 21, I think, during their bushfires. We're seeing it regularly happening in California and British Columbia and elsewhere. It's become a common feature. How do you deal with a pyro CB? A thunderstorm that happens on a blue sky day because there's so much energy coming from that fire that it can shoot out lightning 20 miles away from the fire front. 
again, it's uh, as I started off the conversation, and it's mind-boggling. It's really head-spinning. And we're now just beginning to try to figure out how to predict these kinds of events because we have uh, wildfire fighters who are in harm's way. How do they, those people on the ground deal with something like that, you know, with a plume comes up and then it hits uh, cold air and then it comes collapsing down and then just erupts and sends, you know, uh, fires spreading out in all directions and also triggering lightning at the same time. And, you know, in the background of this conversation is something that's millions of years old. It's in mammals. It's in horses. It's in cats and dogs. We fear fire in a big, big way. And now we have something even more horrifying. When you look at some of these videos, or I've been close up to an out-of-control wildfire, and that is the scariest moment in my life. And I think people are sensing this. I think it's, it's going to change the way our society feels about itself. It's a very good point, um, but if you look at it, we have, haven't culturally, we haven't prepared ourselves for this moment. You know, you look at every other kind of disaster that's out there. We've done movies about them. We've written books and novels uh, around them. But, you know, up until just very recently, I think there's only been one Hollywood movie that was even peripherally related to wildfire. If you look at our literature, apart from maybe Norman McLean, we we don't include that in, in our literature, largely because our writers tend to live in big cities that are not affected by wildfire. The difference between now and then is that wildfires are now coming to the big cities, uh, maybe not in, in, in flames, but in smoke. And it's affecting our air quality. There's a recent report showing that uh, there may be as many as 3,000 unattributable, uh, undocumented deaths related to wild, wildfire smoke in California during the 2020 fire season. We haven't prepared ourselves for that kind of in a cultural sense. And so this is a new sort of like the dragon in the forest that we always suspected was there, but is now coming to us. And uh, I think that most of us just, uh, you know, our, our jaws have dropped and we, we are only beginning to come to grips with this. And of course, people, especially during this pandemic, are also trying to get out of the big city and they're going deeper into the forest and building these lovely getaway places and uh, fire up their off-road vehicles and their chainsaws and uh, clear a bunch of stuff and don't know what they're doing. That also increases not just the risk for firefighters who have to get them out when they don't want to go, but, you know, just the chances that we will have more fires. It, it does. I mean, and it's a kind of an economic situation for many people living in a big city is unaffordable because they can't afford the property taxes. If you move into a rural area in a forested area, either you don't pay property taxes or you pay very, very little. And so that's drawing one segment of the population there. The other segment is the more affluent people, retirees, who decide, you know, they don't want to deal with traffic every day. They want to have a, you know, a, a quiet place in the country, uh, surrounded by forest, and they're, they're not preparing for the event of fire. So they're building wood-sided homes with cedar-shaped shingles, uh, wood decks uh, with a propane barbecue on the, on the deck and ornamental cedars surrounding the house, all of them very, very flammable, basically with a hope and a prayer that the fire is not going to come to them. And this is 
not the case anymore, as we're seeing in California, in Oregon, in British Columbia. Uh, all those people, you know, who have their dream homes in the forest, in the country, are finding that this does not, this is not a good mix. So in several articles and in your book, Firestorm, you suggest civilization can learn to live with megafires and maybe prosper anyway. Really? I think so. I mean, it's a tall order for sure. The first thing we can do is we can have better building codes, create the infrastructure that is more resilient to fire. We've done that with building codes on the West Coast for earthquakes. Uh, We've done that, you know, places like Florida and Texas and Louisiana for tropical storms that come through. We just don't do that now for wildfire. We're continuing to build homes and communities in the way we have uh, in the past. The problem right now for a lot of these communities is that many of them, and I've spoken to many of these forested communities, they want to do something, but the problem is they don't have the tax base to be able to bring in the resources to make them more resilient. And so I think what we really need is kind of a national program, both in the United States and Canada, that uh, empowers these communities, you know, provide them, say, with a full-time expert for for a one- or two-year period that tells them what needs to be done to make your community more resilient, and then perhaps tax incentives to encourage people when they build or renovate to build homes that are more resilient to fire. The one thing that we've done for the past hundred years is demonize fire and and suppress it every time it comes anywhere near to a community. That's created a kind of uh, working against Mother Nature and what lightning does. We need we need to have fire to regenerate forests, and we've got to find some way of allow of allowing or replicating what Mother Nature does. So we don't have all of this fuel on the ground that burns so intensely that no amount of suppression can deal with it. So there are many, many things that we can do, you know, and we can also reduce our carbon emissions because that certainly is is exacerbating the problems. But I think there's just such a long list of things that we can do that, you know, I think it is possible to get on top of this. People always ask me, you're so optimistic about maybe too optimistic about some of these huge environmental challenges. But, you know, we've we've come come to the plate in the past. Acid rain used to be a huge, huge problem, uh, you know, with sulfur emissions, uh, acidifying uh, lakes and killing fish right across North America. And who were the two leaders who uh, actually solved that problem? Was President Reagan a conservative Republican, and Brian Mulroney, a conservative Canadian prime minister. Uh, That gives me hope as a liberal thinking person that when people come to their senses and realize that some of the answers to this are relatively simple and it's certainly a lot more cost-effective than simply going in and compensating people to the tune of billions of dollars to rebuild basically in the same place. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is award-winning science journalist and author Ed Struzik. We are talking about megafires, but now let's go someplace a little safer and wetter. Ed, nobody wants to live in a swamp except maybe hordes of insects and frogs. Why are you writing about the wet places in your coming book? Well, 
Put it simply is that they're a firefighter's best friend for one. Most fires, and the firefighters will tell you, can't be controlled. The big fires can't be controlled or stopped. They, they can maybe move them away from a community. They can slow them, but they can't be stopped. So most wildfires, the big ones, stop when they hit a, a, a swamp, a bog, or a fen. Now, the problem with that is, is that we've drained, systematically draining swamps, bogs, fens for the past 100 years. Uh, there's estimates that it's as high as 70% in the United States and 50% in southern Canada. So we're, we've removed these natural firefighting reservoirs that could have otherwise help us. And my argument in the book is, is that what we really need to do is to restore some of these fens, bogs, and swamps in critical areas because they're wonderful wildlife habitat. If you look at most of the endangered species in North America, most of them have a home in a bog, fen, or a swamp. And part of the reason is it's the nature of the habitat, but it's also is that fire is not a frequent visitor. Their predators are not quite as maneuverable. You know, the wolf chasing a caribou into a swamp has a hard, harder time than doing it, say, in a, in a forest. And we have all kinds of insects in there, that many of them that have not even been documented. So from an ecological point of view, it's also important to restore those that we've degraded uh, or dried out and uh, protect those that we have still remaining. I want to talk a little bit about peatlands. In Indonesia, large corporations owned by Chinese corporations or uh, companies in Malaysia have been draining some of the world's deepest peatlands and trying to make palm oil plantations, which they call a a green energy. They've sold it to the Dutch as a green energy, uh, even though it destroyed rainforests that are home to things like the orangutans. And peat marshes in Russia have also been drained. And when they caught fire in 2010, Russia and the world experienced record heat waves and hundreds of deaths. Why is peat the X factor in a high fire world? Well, the problem with peat when it burns, or and usually it only burns when it's been degraded, when as they do in, in uh, Indonesia, you know, they burn those those forests so that they can create palm plantations, is that it's almost impossible to put it out because the peat burns, you know, it smolders, and it goes down three, even four feet. And it's not just in places like Indonesia and northern Russia. If you look like the Great Dismal Swamp in North Carolina and Virginia, that has been systematically drained for, I mean, right, right back to the days of George Washington. George Washington created the, the Great Dismal Swamp Company that tried to actually drain that swamp and transform it into agriculture. And they did it. They, the U.S. Congress actually bought shares in it for the next 20 or 30, 40 years. And what that did was it dried out many parts of the swamp and then they burned. They're burning to this day. It's amazing to think, but the Great Dismal and the Pocosins next door in uh, North Carolina, both of them swamps, wetlands, peatlands, uh, continue to burn because they've been so badly degraded. And so what they're trying to do now, the U.S. Fish and uh, Wildlife Service is trying to re-wet those peatlands to stop those fires because I think it was in 2000, 
I can't remember. It was not so long ago when it, the last time it caught fire, it took a tropical storm to put it out. And even then, it continued to smolder for several weeks. They had a problem with that in another bog in South America. Meanwhile, British scientist uh, Ewan Nesbitt told EcoShock listeners the largest source of the global warming gas, methane, on the planet is actually a big bog complex in East Africa, and they know that from measuring air samples gathered over the world. Did you look into giant tropical peat bogs, which are also under threat? I did. It's a chapter in the book. It begins with, with the Alakai Swamp in Hawaii, which is a, uh, a mountain bog, a system of uh, several mountain bogs, and the newly discovered one in Africa, which is the biggest, uh, what, the largest tropical bog in the world. And they're only, you know, recently being discovered, some of, the, some of these places, and they store an enormous amount of carbon and methane. Uh, and there are plans right now for oil and gas companies to go in and drill into this area because it's it's rich in fossil fuels. And the way they do it is that they're going to have to drain parts of it to be able to set up their rigs. This is just another example of the continuation of draining these wetlands, these, these bogs, fens, and swamps, both here in North America and tropical areas uh, around the world. And there's a lot of worry about methane increasing from Arctic wetlands as permafrost thaws. Uh, I know you've looked into that. Didn't you write a book called The Future Arctic? I did, yes. Yeah. Another head spinner was the 2007 Anaktuvik tundra fire in Alaska that burned for three months. The north slope of Alaska doesn't burn. Anybody that's been there would come home thinking this is a very wet, very cold ecosystem. But it was that one summer where things, the rains didn't come. It got very, very hot. And lightning, which is moving north uh, into the Arctic, well past the Arctic Circle, triggered fires that lasted for three months. And the only thing that put them out was the snow that came in, I think, uh, October. And it released huge amounts of methane uh, that had been trapped in the peat in the tundra. Do you think these unloved places like swamps and quaking bogs, and what the heck is a quaking bog, do they have their own right to exist in nature? I think they do. Um, as I point out in my book, I think that they're probably the, the most biologically important uh, ecosystems that we have. They store four times as much carbon as the Amazon rainforest, uh, for one, if you're thinking about climate. But uh, you mentioned orangutans. They come from peatlands and Many of the new birds that have been discovered in Indonesia were discovered in peatlands. Uh, there's a, uh, a fen where, close to where I live, where I was out with a biologist that uh, had cataloged 1,500 wasps that are new to nature in this one tiny fen. They're incredible places, and some of the oldest trees in the world you'll find there because Really, they're so, you know, many of them are so acidic that there are only a certain number of predators that can come in. So you don't have the big algal bloom problems in a, say, a bog or a fen as you do, say, in the Great Lakes. The other thing about them is that they're wonderful filters. You look at, for example, the Great Lakes. You know, it's got an algal bloom problem now, and part of it is because we drained all of the fens and peatlands around them. And these are wonderful filters. Peat 
captures all of the nutrients that comes out of agricultural areas and stores them there rather than going into the fresh water of the lakes. So they're Mother Nature's way of filtering water or fresh water. They stop wildfires. They're home to a remarkable array of birds and animals and insects. The, I was also with another biologist that has been tracking, trying to find a butterfly or a moth, I'm sorry, that is thought to be extinct for the past 20 years and found one. Where did he find one? In a fen. And when other entomologists started looking, they've been finding dozens of these uh, moths that, that were thought to be extinct in fens. So these are largely unexplored areas. And part of the problem is that Scientists are biased. You know, scientists are like human beings. They like to do their studies generally in areas that are reasonably comfortable, you know, picturesque. It's a little bit more of a challenge to be slogging through a very, very buggy bog or a fen or a swamp to conduct your research. And I think that's where we've got to start focusing our attention. I couldn't go out on one of those swamps, and I have done this, without a, a bee bonnet on, like, and just, you know, elastic bands around the gloves leading up my shirt. You've just got to be in a almost a special gear to survive when there's uh, swarms of mosquitoes and black flies and deer flies. Well, you know, in the Great Dismal Swamp, they actually have a video saying that bug spray is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> that only encourages them. <laughs> they really do. And if when you go there, I mean, you really have to pick your times because uh, I've 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 never seen anything quite like it. Or been the number of different flies, biting flies there is extraordinary. And so, in a way, it's good because you know the problem with many of the mountain parks. For example, in in, uh, the Canadian Rockies, we have up to 6 million people visiting annually. There are just too many people, you know, for that grizzly bears and caribou and other animals to be able to manage. They're constantly bumping into each other. These are animals that are solitary. They like to be alone. But there's just too many people there. You don't have that problem in a swamp or a bog or fen because you're not going to get 5 million people descending the Great Dismal Swamp. So that's one of the great benefits of focusing on these areas is that you don't have competing interests such as businesses that rely on tourists. You've got an area that will only be able to handle a certain number of people because there's, you know, the only way of getting to see them in some cases are boardwalks. And you can only put so many people on a boardwalk. So I, I, I just think that it makes an awful lot of sense, given all the ecosystem functions that you have from a bog or a fen or a swamp, the, the filtering of water, uh, the prevention of wildfire, uh, the habitat for wildlife. It's a win-win situation, and they're, re- they're relatively small. And it doesn't take an awful lot to restore them. For example, the Great Dismal Swamp, one of the things that they're doing in California this year in Nevada is is they're bringing back beavers so that they build dams and they naturally re-wet these areas. So you don't even have to have this big, huge infrastructure in play to restore them. It's fairly economical. I've, I've just finished, you know, part of my, my book is about it's wonderful that we have this international campaign to plant more trees on the landscape. You know, in Canada, I think they're looking at $10 billion over a 10-year period, and they're devoting 4 or $5 billion to do it, which is nice. And everybody likes trees, and everybody likes the idea of planting a tree. 
But a tree takes an awful lot of fertilizer, for example, to get going. It also has to have the right conditions to get going. And it also has to deal with insects and potentially wildfire that could wipe out a whole bunch of trees. That doesn't happen in a fen because a fen is pretty resilient. You know, the, the main ingredient in peat is sphagnum moss, and it really is a super plant. You can dry it out. They found a 500-year-old specimen in the Arctic embedded in ice, and they took it back to the lab, and it grew. You know, you can't do that with a tree. Once a tree is dead, it's dead. But the mosses that are the, the foundation for peat are incredibly resilient, and they, their ability to grow and spread is remarkable. So we should really be nurturing those kinds of ecosystems because they're manageable, because they're very, very small, and they don't require a lot of caretaking. Well, in our last minute, would you tell us about the new book you're working on about fires? It's basically North America-centric, and it looks at the history of wildfire back to the days when the first Jamestown community started and how we imported our, our approaches to wildfire were inherited from Europeans and why, for climatic reasons, for cultural reasons, uh, we got into this very big mess that we're in. And so I look at the sequence of a whole bunch of different fires that shape the way we think about fires and also how mistaken we were in thinking that we could control them. The idea that these are meteorological events that can be controlled uh, hasn't panned out. And so we're paying, for the, paying the price for that. Ed, where can listeners follow up uh, to get more on your work? I write a lot for Yale Environment 360, uh, which is a magazine published by the Yale School of the Environment. Uh, I write for the TAI. I've written for the Los Angeles Times. I've got six, seven, eight books out. And I encourage everybody to read my next book, Swamplands, which I think is Future Arctic was about how we can do really nothing about declining sea ice. It's going to disappear, and the ecosystem is going to change. The difference thing about swamps, fens, and bogs is that we actually can do something about it. And so I think it's an optimistic story. Well, I'll put links to all of this because we've been speaking with award-winning Canadian journalist and author Ed Struzik, and you can check out his book, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future, and watch for the soon-coming-out release of Swamplands, Tundra Beavers, Quaking Bogs, and the Improbable World of Pete. Ed, thank you for sharing your work with Radio Ecoshock listeners. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith reporting.